It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hello, podcast fans. Hope you had a great weekend. I made my world debut yesterday on national television uh, playing the piano during a segment on the fascinating new and final Beatles song based on, as you undoubtedly know by now, a old John Lennon tape. And, you know, I just, I was fooling around. I played uh, a little bit of She Loves You to show the beginning of the Beatles era. And then I played the opening part or the key part of Let It Be, the close of the Beatles era. I had fun. My piano's a little out of tune. Uh, If you missed it, we posted that online today, along with a lot of other stuff. uh, Really tremendous interview with uh, Fox's Trey Yingst, who just got back from the Gaza Strip uh, with a handful of other reporters escorted there by the Israeli military, And he talked about, first of all, he also talked about uh, there are things you can't say on television, Uh, things that are so graphic, things that are so brutal that you have to hold back. And then he talked about seeing how dangerous Gaza really is, because there haven't really been any Western reporters in Gaza until now, uh, for Israeli soldiers, and how deep the penetration of the Israeli military is now surrounding Gaza City, and we'll see what comes next. Uh, A knowledgeable source confirms to me that Ron DeSantis will, in fact, tonight get the endorsement of Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. And, you know, there have been reports out there saying this is going to happen, and I've had it confirmed to me personally. Um... I'm generally of the view that endorsements don't really matter much in politics. This might prove to be an exception because Kim Reynolds is a very popular governor. Um, Donald Trump obviously holds a huge lead. He holds a huge lead in a lot of places. We'll get to that later. Uh, But it's clearly a boost for Ron DeSantis for the incumbent governor to come out in favor of him. Uh, also, you know, when the Texas Rangers won the World Series last week, guy was really happy about it. It was George W. Bush. Remember, he owned the team, uh, sold it almost three decades ago. And I missed the first game of the series, so I didn't know this. He threw out the first pitch. So the former president, I'm sure, very happy with the first world championship for the team he previously owned. And the there was been this guessing game about who would Jeff Bezos pick to run the Washington Post. Well, now the guessing game is over. Uh, Bezos selecting a guy named William Lewis. He is from Britain. He started out as a reporter. The Washington Post's own story says he he spent years working in British media and for Rupert Murdoch-owned companies. He's been named the CEO and publisher. Um... He has a lot of experience. He started out as a reporter, but he also was the CEO of Dow Jones and the publisher of the Wall Street Journal for six years. 
where he is widely credited as having done a good job. So here's what he told his new paper in an interview. We're going to expand. We're going to get our swagger back. That's interesting. He says, I wish I was still a journalist. He says, for the post, he wants to bring in younger audiences, use AI, uh, new subscription strategies, more personalized offerings for news consumers. He said also that he is dedicated to the separation of nonpartisan news from reported commentary and commercial activity. And he wants to find new revenue sources. Yeah, who doesn't? I don't like having all our eggs in one basket, so if advertising dips, it's not panic stations. Uh, One more little um, tidbit here. George Santos, of course, on the criminal indictment, apologized the other day for taking a very personal jab at another Republican. Um, Congressman Steve Womack took a jab at Santos saying, you know, there was a vote to expel him last week and he survived. He didn't get close to the two-thirds majority. So in hitting back at Womack, George Santos said, your son is a felon. He's been in and out of the prison system for years. He is a drug dealer, poisoning people on the streets with meth and unlawful possession of a gun. Instead of being home taking care of your son, you're sitting pretty in the swamp. Why go there? Why bring in the guy's son? You want to beat up on the congressman? Fine. You know, he took a swing at you. You take a swing back. No wonder he apologized. All right, getting down to business here with story number one. The situation in Israel right now is that essentially Gaza has been cut in half as Israeli troops surround or encircle Gaza City, the biggest and most densely populated area of the Strip, area of the Strip, I should say. Um, And clearly getting ready to mount an even greater offensive with the bombing having intensified even more last night. We don't have all the details because there was another blackout. You know, no ability to get on the internet and so forth. But here is an interesting column by Jim Garrity, this one saying that when Joe Biden vowed, and we saw him do that on his trip to Tel Aviv, when he vowed to absolutely have the United States back Israel, Garrity says the Biden stance is now, eh, that's enough. You guys have to pause now that you have Gaza City surrounded. So the White House emphasizes that the president's not calling for a ceasefire. Just for short pauses, by the way, rejected by Netanyahu, to allow more humanitarian aid in and to allow others to come out of Gaza at that crossing with Egypt. You know, as Garrity notes, Hamas and its allies have a long history of breaking ceasefires. And there is no way, he says, and I agree, for the Israeli Defense Forces to pause without putting its soldiers at extreme risk of an ambush or a counterattack. There's no way that's going to happen. I think Biden was trying to signal to the world that he's sympathetic to the increasingly dire humanitarian crisis in Gaza. 
And so Jim says it's one thing to halt long-range bombing, artillery, air missions. When a lot of territory separates the two sides, it's another thing to halt men in tanks and armored personnel carriers who've traveled deep into enemy territory. And yet the Biden's team, uh, Biden team's message to Israel is called timeout. But there is, he says, no light-touch approach to eliminating a threat on the scale of Hamas. Hamas is a de facto terrorist army, not just a small cell of operatives. That's what people have to understand. I mean, it's not just, uh, you know, a bunch of guerrilla fighters in tunnels. A source close to Hamas says they are a mini-army. There are only two options here, says Jim. Israel can destroy Hamas, but along the way, and we talked about this a lot on Media Buzz yesterday, it will inflict a terrible price on the Palestinian civilians around the terrorist group and often in front of them. I will just digress to saying this is the problem. Hamas terrorists embed themselves in hospitals, uh, Israel says, in ambulances, in schools, with ordinary civilians knowing full well that if the Israelis attack, they will be blamed for the resulting civilian casualties. But it is Hamas who cares so little about its own people. In fact, they're, they kind of celebrate. They call them martyrs when civilians die. So a lot of what I talked about and I have said on this podcast is that the media are growing more and more critical of Israel as memories fade of the awful, unspeakable Hamas atrocities that launched this war, killing families, women, children, babies, very old people, or, or taking them hostage. Um, but it is a small army. Second point Jim makes is, or the other alternative is, Israel can do the job halfway and leave part of Hamas intact to plot another massacre for another day. There's no happy option C where Hamas gets destroyed, but the Palestinian civilians in the Gaza Strip emerge unscathed. A high number of civilian casualties are inevitable, even if Hamas authorities do inflate the numbers. There is no, quote, nice way to fight Hamas. I mean, war is hell. It's awful. The, quote, surgical targeting that some are calling for doesn't exist. You either accept Palestinian civilian casualties as a tragic but inevitable consequence of fighting Hamas, or you don't fight Hamas. And if the deaths and injuries among those innocent civilians outrage you, and they ought to, you blame Hamas, says Garrity, for hiding behind and beneath them, not the Israelis for deciding to hit Hamas targets. And then he gets into the politics a little bit. Nearly half of self-identified Democrats don't approve of Israel's war on Hamas, and only a third approve of it. I didn't realize the numbers were that high in terms of not backing Israel. Democratic lawmakers who are traditionally pro-Israel are on the other side of their party's grassroots on this one. We see that from the tens of thousands of people turning out 
for these pro-Gaza demonstrations. And look, as I said yesterday, people have every right to engage in peaceful protests. They can back the Palestinians if they want. They can back Hamas if they want, as long as they're not engaged in violence. And we see the you know unbelievable surge in horrific anti-Semitic attacks and incidents and harassment, and not just on college campuses. We're seeing it in all kinds of places around the world. Uh, Garrity concludes by saying they are adding uh, caveats to their support. We said you had every right, and in fact a duty to respond to these attacks, but not like that. Well, there is simply no way. I mean, look, I'm torn on this. I, I grieve for the deaths of innocent Palestinians, those who have left their homes in the north and have gone south, where they're not, still not safe. And many fear a repeat of what happened in 1948 when Israel was created and all the Arab states attacked Israel or all the surrounding Arab states, um, that they won't be able to return to their homes. Many of the Palestinians in Gaza now were are descendants of those who were pushed there in 1948 because they had to have some place to live. Meanwhile, you also have trouble on the West Bank, the occupied West Bank. So, Tony Blinken met with Netanyahu on Friday to ask for humanitarian pauses. BB said no. Uh, Blinken also met with the leader of the uh, Palestinian Authority, which runs the West Bank. And there's simply no question that world opinion is increasingly turning against Israel, and this was predictable. You know, the news cycle moves on. I've said, I think, every day in the coverage there should be a reminder of the terrible, barbaric things that Hamas did with its surprise attack. But the Hamas PR strategy is sort of working in that there's two parts to it, but a lot of people only hear the first part. The first part is Israel bombed a refugee camp. Israel bombed a hospital. Israel bombed an ambulance convoy. Israel bombed a UN school for Palestinians. The second part is that Hamas is embedded in these places. Otherwise, the Israeli military would not be dropping these bombs. But if you already are not uh, highly critical of Israel... You, you can either, as a matter of news coverage or as a matter of selective hearing, often I find people hear what they want to hear. They say, I said one thing on TV that I didn't, or they say, you never addressed this when I did. You know, it just comes with the territory. But those who choose to play up the civilian casualties in Gaza, as Hamas does, have every right to do that, although the numbers, you know, are often inflated, but still, every single life lost is a tragedy. And Israel, therefore, um, 
is coming under intense pressure, not just from the United States, to curtail the loss of civilians, perhaps by dropping smaller bombs on some of these sensitive areas. Meanwhile, a New York Times magazine writer named Jasmine Hughes resigned from the paper after signing an open letter, after being reprimanded for signing an open letter that says Israel is engaged in genocide against the Palestinian people. And uh, an editor is quoted as saying that uh, this was a clear violation of the Times policy on public protest. Says they mutually agreed that she had to resign. I'm sure she would have liked to have kept her job. Uh, The letter says, We stand firmly by Gaza's people, victims of a genocidal war, by the United States, or that the United States government, excuse me, continues to fund, fund and arm with military aid. You know, I've said this many times in regard to all kinds of issues, abortion, you name it. If you want to publicly take a stand for or against some policy, some controversy, some war, you're free as an American or as a journalist to do that. But you can't be a journalist. You can be an opinion journalist. But you can't work for the New York Times. You can't work for other mainstream news organizations. you got to choose. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. Number two, Politico has a piece about Hunter Biden breaking a little new ground. Uh, I had a segment on Hunter Biden yesterday publishing this op-ed in USA Today in which he said, look, I'm an addict. That doesn't excuse what I did. But when the other side comes after me with a vilification campaign, they're really hurting all the addicts out there who might be trying to get clean. Uh, I don't know that that's a very effective PR strategy, and it brings his whole mess back into the news. Well, what Politico is saying is, uh, has to do with a, a dinner at Cafe Milano in Georgetown back in 2015. Now, there are emails showing that Hunter Biden hosted that dinner in a private room at this Washington restaurant that included both his father, that Joe Biden was there, then vice president, and an executive from the Ukrainian energy company Burisma, which had appointed Hunter Biden to its board. And there was an email from an executive thanking Hunter for the chance to meet his father. Now, you know, the company line, uh, the White House line, is that no business was talked about. It was just a social occasion. But what happened is that one of the people said to be there was a Ukrainian executive named Vadim Pozharsky. And Politico had asked the White House, when Biden says he has nothing to do with his son's businesses, does this rule out any informal encounter with Pozharsky in April 2015? Yes, the White House spokesman wrote back. Now, in July, a former Hunter Biden business partner who was at the dinner testified before a House committee that 
yes, this Ukrainian executive did dine with Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and uh, a few others. Asked to explain this discrepancy, the White House did not address the question. Just said, as we have said many times before, the president was not in business with his son or anyone else in the family. The explicit White House denial of an, even an informal encounter, reported here for the first time, says Politico, was not the only time that statements made by Biden and his camp about Hunter Biden's dealings have been contradicted by others. I think part of the problem here is not necessarily what Joe Biden did, but they took such a, a hard line. No, no contact at all. And, you know, he got on all those phone calls. We found that out. Um, none of this makes the president guilty of anything, but it does show that some of the initial White House denials are simply not holding up. Number three, Congressman Dean Phillips. Remember him? He's the Democrat from Minnesota who has decided belatedly to challenge President Biden in the primaries. Says he'll host 119 town halls in uh, New Hampshire, where he's making his first stand. But the town hall... uh, that he one of the first town hall really that he had in New Hampshire, uh, according to the Washington Post, was let's just put it politely a bleeping disaster. So there was screaming and profanity from voters because they didn't like Dean Phillips's response to a question about a ceasefire in the Middle East. Let me get to some of the quotes here. Um, just sending it up, the Minnesota congressman confronted the tough realities of being a late and little-known entrant to the presidential race. 23-year-old Democrat stood up, asked him to support a ceasefire in the Israel-Gaza war. Uh, Phillips began his response by turning the question around to ask how she feels about the Israelis killed by Hamas in the conflict. I'm going to answer each of your questions, but I have to tell you, I took note that you didn't mention how do you feel about the Israeli babies and moms and dads and grandmas and hostages in Gaza who were brutally murdered. I just want to hear, before I answer your question, if that empathy is across humanity or only for Palestinians right now. Then he interrupted her and said, I'm completely empathetic to them. Um, he tried to say, you and, our, you and I are the same. Now, he did say that he was horrified and disgusted when I see Palestinians slaughtered. Then they got into a debate about whether she was being antagonistic. Uh, another man popped up and said, they're U.S. bombs. That's the effing problem. person seated near uh, this woman who started out with the question shouted out that Phillips had not answered her question. You just gaslit her instead, said this other guy. A black man, one of a few at the event, asked if white supremacists and hate groups should be categorized as terrorists. And Congressman Phillips responded, those are terrorists, 100%. The man then asked if that means bombs should be dropped on states such as Alabama to eradicate these groups. And Phillips said, well, the Ku Klux Klan is different from Hamas. Anyway, it just went off the rails. Just went off the rails. And yesterday, Dean Phillips said that if he's not getting any traction in the presidential race by March, March is the month of Super Tuesday and a bunch of other primaries, that he will drop out. So basically he's saying, you know, 
if I get an unexpectedly strong protest vote against Joe Biden, fine. That's why I'm running because no other, in effect, he's implying I'm running because no other big name Democrat had the conies to do this. But I don't want to ultimately hurt the party. So if I go nowhere, I'll take my name off the ballot to the extent that that can be done. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four, Donald Trump testifies today at the New York civil fraud trial. This is like the Super Bowl. The media totally gearing up for this. Unfortunately, no TV cameras. So we'll have a lot of reports from those who are inside the courtroom and, of course, the pictures from the sketch artists. Um, This is about... I think Donald Trump is just... He hates this case. He's angry that it was brought. And he feels like if he gets up there and testifies, he thinks he's guilty of nothing. Uh, He can clear his name and the reputation of his company. Problem is, there's no jury. But there is the jury of public opinion, and I am positive the former president will come out more than once, talk to reporters and make the case and talk about what happened inside that courtroom. Meanwhile, you know, what headline writers like to refer to as a shock poll, uh, New York Times and Siena College have come out with some really bad numbers for Joe Biden. With the caveat that we're a year out, in fact, we're almost exactly a year out, this is where the race stands. Donald Trump ahead of the president in five of the six key swing states surveyed by the Times. This is by margins of 4 to 11%. The states are Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. Joe from Scranton, trailing in Pennsylvania. Only in Wisconsin, which happens to be the whitest of those states, uh, is Biden ahead by two percentage points. So everybody's going nuts over this. It's one poll, of course. But look, I mean, I believe... If the election were held today, President Biden would lose. And I want to get into some of the details here. Uh, It's going to add to calls by some liberal pundits and Dems for the president to step aside. Um, A majority say that Biden's policies have hurt them. Also, The demographic graphic groups that he won in 2020, he's losing ground there. For example, younger voters, voters under 30 favored Biden by only a single percentage point, which is statistical tie. His lead among Hispanic voters down to single digits. These are areas, these are groups, I should say. These are voters uh, with whom Democratic presidential candidates usually score quite well. His advantage in urban areas is half of Trump's edge in rural regions. And while women still favor Joe Biden, men preferring Trump by twice as large a margin. 
And then we come to the real kick in the pants, black voters, you know, absolute bedrock constituency of the Democratic Party, are now registering 22% support in these states for Trump, a level unseen in presidential politics for a Republican in modern times. I mean, if that holds, Joe Biden can kiss the presidency goodbye. So the lead is, I'm sorry, it's 10 points in Nevada for Trump, six points in Georgia for Trump, five points in Arizona for Trump, five points in Michigan for Trump, four points in Pennsylvania for Trump. Uh, Trump's greatest strength is his perceived skill and handling the economy. In fact, voters say uh, they trust Trump more to handle the economy by a margin of 22 points across every age group among white and Hispanic voters. Um, And this is the key to the election. Now, the reality is, but it takes people time to feel it, and it doesn't really matter what the statistics show if people feel that the economy is shaking, if they're worried about their jobs, but... 13 million jobs have been created since Biden became president. And some of those, of course, are lost jobs, jobs that were lost during the pandemic. And for, I don't know, 20 straight months, something like that, the unemployment rate has been below 4%. 4% used to be the sort of benchmark for full employment. But Biden gets no credit for that. You know, the reason he's going around the country talking about uh, more money for Uh, high-speed rail and more money for infrastructure, is that these are all things that he was able to push through in the first two years. But people aren't feeling it or they don't know about it or he's just a lousy messenger. Uh, A couple things the Times story today points out in this poll. If Donald Trump is convicted and sentenced, for example, in the January 6th trial uh, in D.C. scheduled for next year, about 6% of voters in those six swing states, say they would switch to Biden. So that would be enough to swing the election. And a majority of swing state voters view him negatively. However, a majority, and this is true, I think, of a majority of Democrats. Not that I think. Polls have consistently shown this. It's the age problem. Joe Biden will turn 81 this month. And just a lot of people, even though in the last few weeks, I mean, he's gone to Israel, uh, he has um, done a terrific job, in my view, of managing the Israeli-Hamas war, although things are starting to spin out of control. And since there are a number of Democratic liberals who are on the Palestinian side, he may be, there may be some erosion there. But nonetheless... Although it's one poll, you know, if Biden can't win most of those states, you're looking at a second Trump term. It's a reality. Despite the four indictments, despite the civil trial, despite the finding against him in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, Donald Trump is leading this race. And that's going to cause a lot of consternation. Washington Post piece, which basically was following up on a New York Times exclusive about um, how Trump wants to only hire loyalist lawyers in his second term, not all these 
uh, sort of traditional conservative types that he turned on when he was president because they tried to stop him from doing a lot of things, things that critics see as um, illegal or unconstitutional. But the Post uh, has some new information saying that his associates, Trump associates, drafting plans to potentially invoke the Insurrection Act on his first day in office that would allow him to deploy the military against civil demonstrations. In private, Trump has told advisors and friends he wants the Justice Department to investigate one-time officials and allies who have become critical, to say the least, of his time in office, including... General John Kelly, his former chief of staff. Bill Barr, his former attorney general. Ty Cobb, his former lawyer. And General Mark Milley, his former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, according to people who have talked to him. And vowing to appoint a special prosecutor to go after President Biden and his family. So I think that will be greeted uh, not exactly with great enthusiasm by those who don't support Trump. And finally, number five. Uh, This has to do with deepfake photos. Here's the lead. When Gabby Bell learned there was a naked photo of her circulating on the internet, her body turned cold. The YouTube influencer had never posed for the image, which showed her standing in a field without clothes. She knew it must be fake. But when the 26-year-old Bell messaged a colleague asking for help removing the image, he told her there were nearly 100 fake photos scattered across the web, mostly housed on websites known for hosting porn generated by AI. They were taken down in July, but new images depicting her in graphic sexual situations have already surfaced. She says in an interview, I felt yucky and violated. Those private parts are not meant for the world to see because I have not consented to that. So it's really strange that someone would make images of me. So artificial intelligence is fueling what the Washington Post describes as an unprecedented boom in fake pornographic images that it's cheap and easy to use. I mean, this is disgusting. This is pathetic. This is sick. You know, it's one thing if you're a celebrity and you pose for pictures and they get out there. I don't like that either. But all the people looking at this, they don't know that it's fake. On the top 10 websites that host AI-generated porn photos, fake news, uh, fake nudes, excuse me, not fake news, uh, have ballooned by more than 290% since 2018, uh, according to one study. And often they're celebrities or political figures. Uh, uh, AOC says there may be AOC, there may be teenage girls. There's no federal law governing deepfake porn. Only a handful of states have enacted regulations. Okay, why is that? There are laws against revenge porn. Why is there no federal law? Why doesn't this get passed unanimously by Congress tomorrow? So if this does, if you're a young woman and this happens to you, you have some recourse. It should be illegal. It's unbelievable. Uh, one researcher at the University of Pennsylvania is saying it's very much targeting girls, young girls and women who aren't in the public eye. And I think this is just pathetic, just absolutely pathetic. And it is something, uh, it would be hard to wipe out, 
But if it's made illegal and there are substantial penalties, it could certainly be substantially reduced. But, you know, I mean, the House spent three weeks trying to pick a speaker, so there's not a lot of focus on this. And we're two weeks from a government shutdown, which the new speaker, Mike Johnson, has to figure out a way to avoid. Uh, Once again, hope your weekend was good. Thanks for listening. Always enjoy spending this time with you. I hope the feeling is mutual. See you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. 